Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode, a playoff episode. And today we're going to talk all about playoff hot takes or well, more like backwards basketball stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute before we kind of get into the meat of the topics around Giannis Antetokounmpo and Pascal Siakam and just sort of all of the reactionary things that we're seeing, I I did want to start by acknowledging just an incredible series that wrapped up last night, the Eastern Conference semifinals in the bubble down in Orlando between the Celtics and the Raptors. And I want to memorialize game six because if one of these teams were, if one of these teams, uh, the Celtics have moved on. If the Celtics were to lose to the Heat or possibly get to the finals and kind of, you know, let's say they lose in five or something like that, kind of peter out. It's very easy for history to lose sight of what we just witnessed, which was not only a phenomenal series, an incredible kind of X's and O's back and forth series. And I'm, I'm working on a video uh, as we speak about sort of the unfolding and the chess matches that took place in that series. But it was not only an incredible series, but I thought Game 6 was one of the best NBA games I've seen in years. And I tweeted about it right after the game. When I went back and watched the game a second time, I was almost more impressed with it, if anything, just in terms of all of the things that happened in that game. So Game 6, the Raptors win the game 125-122 in double overtime. They didn't score for something like the last four and a half minutes of regulation. They were up 98-94. The game went to overtime at 98 all. Um, And then just some of the things that happened in this game. The the game featured a box and one for most of the game. Like, just think about that. An NBA team at a high level. And we, we think of a box and one as a quirky defense or a high school defense or something like that but if you actually watch the Raptors play the box and one in this game after having experience with it for a year their defenders are so versatile and so high IQ that they kind of they're like an amoeba they move around with such a beautiful shape that it's actually a very effective uh, defense in this setting, I don't know how much more effective it was than their man. It wasn't like they just completely shut the Celtics down, but they obviously thought it was worthwhile to play. And I think having done a deep deep dive on the film in this series, that it did probably confer some advantage. Either way, they then went to a small lineup for the last 18 minutes of the game, playing a wing, OG Ananobi, at center uh, against Daniel Tice for the Celtics. And basically, you know, four, four, you had Powell, uh, Powell, Lowry, Van Fleet, uh, those guys small themselves. And then Pascal Siakam, the biggest player on the court for the Raptors. Boston didn't have a substitution for the last 22 minutes of the game. Toronto technically brought Mark Gasol in for a free throw, but the free throw was made. Then he went right back out. So they played their same lineup for the last 18 minutes of the game. There was a play in this game where Nick Nurse was on the court. A lot of people missed this. The play inside a final, the final minute, and I can't remember off the top of my head, it was 
regulation or overtime. I think it was regulation. Uh, inside the final minute, Jason Tatum has it at the top. He drives. And in this series especially, something I talked about in his video profile recently and that he's been working on in the bubble or come into the bubble and done better with is these sort of kick-out passes, kicking out to shooters, cross-court passes. And so this drive-and-kick game, very common for him, and he's got Tice in the corner. And you know, out of the corner of your eye, your peripheral vision, two white guys without much hair kind of standing in the, that exact same spot on the court, uh, you're not necessarily expecting the opponent's, opponent's coach to be in the corner and Nick Nurse kind of with his shoes up on the baseline standing right, right next to Tice Tatum passes him the ball. I mean, that was a very unique play in NBA history, largely because of the court and the bubble setup. So just craziness, craziness. Uh, apparently it was the first time ever that eight players logged over 50 minutes in the same game. So you just had this dynamic where all these high IQ players defensive players, versatile players, the coaches trying different things. Like the, the box and one took Kemba out of his rhythm when they went back to man later in the game down the stretch. So then the Celtics were trying to recapture something by going Kemba, Tatum, pick and roll constantly. Like it, it, was, it was just a fascinating dynamic to see how different players were attacked. Uh, Gasol came out of the game. And he was out of the game for defense because in the man situations, they could attack him, specifically Kemba, with the high screening action that they like to run against him or him in a drop. So they were trying to like hedge or blitz with Marc Gasol or two, where he would jump to Kemba on the ball. I mean, it's just, a, just an incredible game. Both teams shot over 40% from three in a double overtime game where eight players played over 50 minutes. Um and there were 35 points. In rewatching it, I couldn't, I, I just forgot this part. It was like 110, 110, or 112, 112, with a couple minutes left in double overtime. And the game finishes 125, 122, because the teams combined for like 35 points in the second overtime. Just an absolute all time classic. Um, okay. Let's get to the playoff reactions, which seem to go more in the same direction every year that we have social media and Seth Partnow, a uh, friend of the show and great read at The Athletic, by the way. This, this, is, this is my chance to mention that this podcast is sponsored by The Athletic. They're a great way to support this podcast if you go over to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That's how you do it. It's where you can sign up, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. You'll get 40% off your annual subscription price there. So I think it makes it a couple bucks, like three bucks a month. And you'll often see me reference these guys in the work I do and research I do. I read what they put out regularly, and Seth is one of them. He's a former analytics director with the Bucks, And I, I think probably price of subscription alone worth it for him. But the point here is that he put out a tweet this morning, and I'll read it here. It's a, it's a very funny tweet. Pascal Siakam appears to have secured this year's Rudy Gobert memorial oversized share of the blame for easily identifiable in advance roster shortcomings award. 
Now it may be a mouthful. We may have to we may have to work on the name. Um, I'll, I'll talk to Seth about the verbiage. But look, he's he's spot on. He's spot on, which is that um, Siakam is being subject to the blame game today, uh, being subject to sort of these huge reactions about his performance, his failed performance, etc., uh, etc. Et and this is exactly what we saw happen with Giannis Antetokounmpo last week as well. It was the exact same thing. So I want to talk through this, and then we will build up to what I just have always called backwards basketball. So before that, we know in the playoffs that there's a tendency to want to simplify things. Actually, we want to simplify things in general. You know, I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, the book. It's not only sort of our predisposition as people to move in this direction with the way our brains work, but also in basketball. Basketball is complex. It, it doesn't feel too complex. One of the things when you get into basketball analysis, a lot of people say it's not rocket science. You know, you're making it too complicated. Uh, it's very simple. The thing is, it's not because you have 10 players moving around and it feels like it should be easy to see everything. But as I've talked about before, I talked about it uh, when Mo DeKeel was on an episode once and we were talking about philosophy of how we watch the games. It takes a lot of practice to focus yourself to watch things happening off the ball. And for me, I don't know about coaches or guys who have been doing it 30 years or whatever, but I always need multiple looks if I'm going to look at multiple things. And there are multiple things happening on an NBA court these days. There were times when the game was a little simpler. You had more isolation during that sort of dead ball um, illegal defense era, right? Sometimes it was easier to watch what was going on because there wasn't much movement away from the basketball. But today, especially at the high-level games, like a Toronto-Boston game, the Toronto-Boston game six, my film study on that game, that was the longest film study I've ever had for a single game. It basically took me, I think it took me four hours to make it through my rewatch on that game. And the simple reason is I was watching a lot of things. A lot of things at the team level, a handful of things at individual levels because they related to some of that strategy or some of the content I'm producing. And so if you watch a game and you want to focus on a player or a dynamic, that takes a certain amount of time and training. But to do everything, I mean, I don't know how you do everything without rewatching it. So there is a level of complexity that feels like we should be able to access it. And it's hard to access. When we simplify, we get to things like the playoffs. And in the playoffs, let's start with Giannis. Giannis and the Bucks have these huge expectations. Now, for me, I don't think it's entirely fair to transfer all of those expectations to the bubble environment because they were clearly a team that was clicking and was better before the shutdown. You know, the the scrimmages and the seeding games, I don't know. Did, I don't know. Did they play two scrimmages? I have no idea. That seems like five months ago. The the 10 games that we saw them play basketball in the bubble, plus the five games against a clearly overmatched team in the first round. So it's, that's a 15-game sample, give or take a game. I mean, I might be wrong with the seeding game. Someone can correct me on that. But that feels like a big enough sample where we can 
look at the overall team performance and the assessment of play and say things like, yeah, this team doesn't look like they're playing as well or they're not clicking as well as they were, what is that, five or six months ago, seven months ago. And that seems like a decent period of time for an actual meaningful change, at least to me. So the expectations, carrying over those expectations seem unfair. And then, of course, we place all those expectations on the star player, who's Giannis. But in this case, I mean, it's such an extreme example because you're in the bubble, seven months have gone by, and then we're talking about two games, basically. He's not healthy in the third game. He sprains his ankle early in the third game. He grinds his way through the game. The ankle obviously swells up and is sore the next day. He comes back. He's questionable for game four. He starts game four. He scores 19 points in 11 minutes in game four. Then he re-injures his ankle and leaves the game. So to me, it's we we have reached a new level of kind of extremism or absurdity in this particular kind of reaction where one or two games is sufficient to completely crucify an individual. Uh, there were things like Giannis isn't even a top 10 player. He's terrible. Now, for me, this is why I do so much work on strengths and weaknesses, because these kinds of things to say, you know, a guy is going to be put in a situation in the postseason where teams can scheme to take away some of the advantages they create in the regular season, those things are predictable. And I would say, I feel like a majority of my podcast guests this year on this show have said the exact same thing. Steve Jones, when I asked him about the Bucks, said he felt sorry for him. And that was, that was a long time ago, or at least based on play from a long time ago, because of the promise, because of the regular season performance. But the weaknesses that they present. And Giannis as a player, he's going into a very special club, for me at least. He's going into the Kevin Garnett club. He's going into the David Robinson club. He's going into, I think Shaq would have been in this club if he didn't play with Kobe. He's going into a group of players whose strength isn't isolation scoring, whose strength isn't based on beautiful, difficult shots and ball handling and things like that. He is a great defensive player. He is a very good offensive player as well, just like Robinson, just like Garnett. Those are the key examples in NBA history. I'm sure we can find other ones. But the point is, you get in a postseason environment. Robinson had this in spades. You get in a postseason environment where your team is overachieved because of you and you are a great defender, and your playmaking or passing is a component of your offensive value, and you still score a lot. Like Giannis had one of the highest scoring rates in NBA history this year at high efficiency. Because he's like Shaq, I've called him the new Shaq. And in fact, uh, I think it's gone too far because now the guy can't shoot free throws. And actually that, I think, is holding him back from some offensive growth this year. But you get in these situations and you can take that away from him predictably. You can take away one of the team's arrows from their quiver or a huge arrow from their quiver. And instead of viewing it that way, you view it as, oh, I was looking to 
trust this guy and the trust has gone away. Or maybe I was looking to knock him down a peg and here's my opportunity to do it. Doesn't matter that it's two games. Doesn't matter that it's one opponent. A, a great matchup, by the way, with Bam and the way that Heat defend and their and Spolstra and you know that's a that's a very bad matchup for Milwaukee going in. I talked about this on the playoff preview episode. I just didn't think Miami had the firepower. Goran Dragic and his emergence and and the injury to Giannis, I think the combination of those things just you ended up with an overwhelming kind of result, but there were also close games in that series and things like that 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 amplified the small sampleness of what I'm talking about. So, Zach Lowe, you know, there are two things probably here at play that I just alluded to. Zach Lowe has talked about capital M moments. He had a really interesting piece, uh, I think about a week ago, on James Harden and his lack of capital M moments, those indelible plays and and games in, in key playoff situations that leave you really impressed, that stick in your mind. And I think the first thing happening is probably that people are genuinely on the fence about a player like Giannis. And if he were to come in in the right environment, a winning effort or a losing effort that has the right characteristics, like Michael Jordan in 1986, we just saw the last dance this year, he lost in a three-game sweep to the Celtics, but because he was very young and he had no expectations, the the dazzling scoring display that he put on felt heroic. It felt superhuman. I mean, it kind of was, but it just, the point is they lost in three games convincingly, but the circumstances were right for people to go, oh, that's a moment. I trust that guy. Like, that's spectacular. So you can do that and I think you can do that in losing, I should say, but more often than not, you want to win. Uh, Tim Duncan had a little bit of that when he was young, where they got to the 1999 finals. Tim, the crazy thing is Tim Duncan has never been a phenomenal offensive player, but and the Spurs weren't a phenomenal offensive team, but when you get in the right circumstance, a winning situation, they played the Knicks in the finals, they had a big size advantage, he hit a number of bank shots on the block, that's his bread and butter move anyway. The fact that it's a banker kind of makes it slightly more memorable. And so very early on, Tim Duncan created a trust effect with people in their minds that sticks. And I don't think Giannis quite has that yet. There's another group though. And I think this is now an enormous thing on social media where the reactions come in from people who want players to fail because they root for another player. You know, we used to have rooting for laundry. You, you, you were a fan at the team level, and now we're seeing a shift toward more tribes of players, if you will, instead of teams. And this is a relatively new thing. And it's the kind of thing that can even lead to, you know, dismissing the teammates themselves. So you say, well, last year, Kawhi Leonard, he, he carried a garbage Raptors team. That was something I heard a lot in my discussions about Kawhi Leonard because, of course, last year I was lower on Kawhi Leonard than a lot of people because of the arc of Kawhi and because of the Raptors winning the title. Um, <laughs> no, one, no one in that discussion realizes that I was higher on Kawhi Leonard years earlier when he was more of a defensive player, but we'll, we'll leave that one for another day. 
So this is confirmation bias, right? This is just the massively strong pull of looking for things, sitting there and waiting for an opportunity to point the finger and say, see, I told you so. This is what I've been waiting for. I knew Giannis wasn't very good. I knew he was a phony fraud. I've been sitting on the sidelines waiting for my opportunity. Yeah, he's got the MVP and now you're giving him defensive player of the year. And I can't really argue against that. I don't know how to muster an argument against that. But you can load my gun and give me something to fire the second he loses in a series he shouldn't lose in, the second he has a game he struggles in, the second a team schemes him and all of a sudden... And, and of course, lost in this is the relativism, relativism of it all, right? All of a sudden, his scoring numbers go from 33 points per 75 all the way down to 27 or something. And it's like, yeah, to me, and I talk about this a lot with James Harden, he's the latest just pinnacle example of this effect to me. To me, that's more accurate of this player's scoring ability. If you think about something like, if we just focus on scoring here, stats that reflect the skill, right? So volume and efficiency, points per game and true shooting percentage, things like that, that are reflective of the skill. If you look at the regular season stats, I think they're more reflective of how you work from night to night without teams scheming you. But when I think of the robustness of a skill, the overall effectiveness of a skill, and especially the ability to put that skill on different teams, I think you get much more information in the postseason. And so let's say Giannis goes from 32, 33 points per 75 or something to around 27-ish. That's, I think, similar to kind of comparable to what ended up happening just in his, in his possessions against the Heat. And let's say his percentage goes down as well because of that. That, to me, is just more reflective of how he is as a scorer. If you take everything from the regular season or just any number presented to you at face value, then, yes, it's the same thing with David Robinson. That's why he's in this club. You would say, oh, my God, that guy's a very good passer. He has tremendous gravity. He, he works within this system. The team offense is very good. He's an elite defender. And oh, looky here, he's got some of the best scoring numbers in NBA history. And I just did for podcast number 50, a revisiting of the top scorers of all time with a little bit more nuance, with a little bit more context than the original podcast episode. And I don't remember mentioning Giannis's name at once. It's not that he's not a good scorer. It's just that despite some of those numbers, it it isn't a great reflection of his scoring ability. Pascal Siakam, another perfect example of this. I, of course, very high on Pascal last year. Personally, um, liked his defense a lot, thought he brought some things to the table offensively, and I thought you got to see that in the playoffs, in certain moments, especially in the finals. But what he added this year to me didn't change him very much. And there was discussion about him being most improved player again. He actually finished fairly high in that voting. There was discussion about him being a top 10 player at the beginning of the season. And that just wasn't a thing for me. Uh, Because again, if you're looking at overall value, and you lose a little of what you're bringing to the table defensively because you have more focus on your offensive game, but that kind of offensive game doesn't actually help you in a scalable, 
portable way on better and better teams. You go to a situation where you're like, oh, okay, Pascal Siakam can be your number one scorer on an okay offense. Whereas last year, if he was your number one scorer, your offense would be worse than okay. But that doesn't really help you much in a higher level environment. And to me, yes, I think uh, Pascal, I think probably moves up a little bit in my growth curve on him from where he was last year. But the ability to add a mediocre pull-up shot and maybe an additional move in the post in the long run, I don't think is really material growth. But because he became the number one scorer on his team, and there's a concept in Thinking Basketball, the book, about how every team has a leading scorer, right? Because he took that role in the regular season, it caused people to create this expectation, inflate their idea of what he was or where his value was coming from, and assume, I, I guess, assume that he was a some kind of superstar offensive level player. And that brings us full circle back to Seth's tweet, which I just thought nailed this concept, concept so perfectly, which is that the roster in a way is asking too much of Siakam. The, the construction of the team is asking him to fill a role that he's not great at filling. The Raptors in you know the, the 2015, 16, 17, in those seasons, the DeMar, Kyle Raptors, they struggled in the postseason to generate good offense. And part of that was they didn't have someone who could fill in that lead scoring role. DeRozan, of course, played that role. He just wasn't very good at it. Then you replace DeRozan with, for my money, probably the best scorer in basketball right now. Um, you could argue whether he's been the best scorer in basketball for the last two seasons, but certainly this season with guys like Durant and Curry on the sideline, I do think he's the best scorer in the game, and that's Kawhi Leonard, and you could see what a nice synergy that created. With that said, they were still very close to going home in the second round against a defensively oriented team because at times there were stretches where it was difficult for them to generate offense, and that to me is both a reflection of where Leonard's scoring was very helpful, but also his lack of playmaking didn't alleviate too much other pressure for the other Raptors. I hope that makes sense. So Seth's tweet about the Rudy Gobert Memorial oversized share of the blame for easily identifiable and advanced roster shortcomings, uh, of course, because Gobert is a defensive anchor with role gravity. So build around that. You know, if you are an isolation scorer or a Kawhi Leonard uh, of last year, I think his playmaking is materially improved this year. I also think that his defense has been better this season as well, just probably from health. He's not dragging that leg around or kind of feeling his way back into a full season like he was last year. So you want to build around those things in a way that makes sense and then judge the context of the team and the players. All of this is a big blame game. That's what's happening here. There's just there's there's a tendency to want to attack and criticize. It's a form of confirmation bias, as I've mentioned, and and you're trying to point the finger with a gotcha, which of course is is the nature of getting clicks and and getting attention on social media. It's a devastating feedback loop that 
rewards and kind of draws out more of this kind of discussion. So someone has one bad game and it's an opportunity for people to point as loudly as possible and say, see, that guy sucks. Or you'll often see, you'll often see, I think people are tipping their hand, frankly, when they talk this way, but they'll see that you'll see things like never compare player X to player Y again. You see, because of this one game, because as you know, player Y never had a bad game. <laughs> That's why I think it's tipping the hand. You're, you're, it's just not intellectually honest. It's just an unreasonable thing to act like no one had a good game. Another one of these is the blowout loss. This is, this is another one of these sort of playoff blame game favorites that, that is popping up. It doesn't seem possible for teams to lose in a blowout in the playoffs without it being attributed to effort or some other psychological thing that's a proxy of effort. Absent-mindedness, psyched out, hung over from this other thing that happened. Like it just can't, it's one thing to be tired. We get that. That usually commentators aren't saying that it's a lack of effort. They're saying you're fatigued, but if teams are apparently both fresh and someone comes in, it's very rare for either people literally announcing the game or people commenting on the sideline to say, yeah, that team was really hot. They were outcoached. They were outplayed. Uh, the players played hard. They didn't make shots and they lost by 28 points. There's, there's such a tendency to move to the blame game and say nah, that that team didn't didn't put forth the right effort. It's a blowout because of that. Let's finish up with backwards basketball, something that I've been thinking about for a very long time and is at the underpinning of plenty of stuff that I've put out, but I don't think I've ever quite articulated these backwards basketball concepts. There are two things specifically I'm thinking of, not not the normal stuff that seems to not make sense or be circular or things like that. Like one of, one of the things that was going on this week is there's a huge push for people to say um, only a few people have, have demonstrated they can lead a team to a title. Uh, and I've seen that listed as four people. I've seen that listed as three people, which is like LeBron, Kawhi, Kevin Durant. Um, this is to me just a tautology. This is just saying the same thing in a different way. All you're saying is, only a few people, in my opinion, have been the best player on a title team recently. But it's a strange way to phrase things because, of course, um, if you're trying to say what players are good enough to win, to lead a team to a title and win a championship as the best player on a team, that is obviously a much longer list. So I'm not even talking about those things. Here are the two specific things to me and maybe there'll be more over time, but I've always thought of these two. And if you're listening, please try to add to more. You as listeners always provide such tremendous feedback and insight. And inevitably over time, uh, I kind of incorporate and try to learn from things that you guys can see uh, that I just can't see or don't think of. So here, here are the two things to me that are backwards basketball. The first one is that it seems for... This group of people, or certainly a specific group of people, I don't know if uh, the Venn diagrams are going to overlap here, but it seems that hard shots are better than easy shots. 
hard shots are better than easy shots. So what I'm specifically thinking of is contested fadeaway jumpers, mid-range pull-ups, spins, things like that, contortionist acts. Those are those seem to count more than dunks. If you just get a bunch of dunks, you're not that good. This is backwards to me. Getting the easier shot is the thing, that's the goal. And that's why, precisely why Shaq was so good. That's precisely why Shaq is one of the all-time great scorers. Because he got so many easy shots. So making really difficult shots, making fadeaway three-pointers or things like that, or fadeaway long two-pointers may be aesthetically more pleasing. They may be more fun. There's, there's all sorts of things that you could say, I enjoy that more or whatever. And certainly a, a display of more kind of the the challenging, difficult ball skills we think of. But part of basketball is the things that happen before your shot. So in the case of Shaq, it was his positioning. It was his power. It was his speed and athleticism to use that power and spin and jump and explode past players who were his size or smaller. His his size. No one was Shaq's size. Um, boy, I got to wrap up. This is I'm getting into Kool Aid Land. Who who was Shaq's size? What, what was he playing? Priest Lauderdale. Um, if you don't know who Priest Lauderdale is, Google that. That's a reference for everyone out there. Um, but yeah, it's this idea that that difficult shots are in a way better or count more as skill than easy shots where if you're a player who can remember the things that happen beforehand are key so if you can penetrate and drive to the hoop and get a bunch of easy layups that is somehow devalued or not valued as much compared to difficult shot making that's the first one the second backwards basketball one is a bigger point that I've talked about extensively so I don't really need to spend much time on it as all, at all, but that's floor raising matters, you know, counts more than ceiling raising. So if you carry a team from 20 wins to 40 wins, there is a group of people that seem to celebrate that um, more than if you have the ability to come in and take a 50 win team to 65 wins or a 60 win team to 75 wins, which is kind of what happened with the, the Warriors dynamic. It was that level of improvement that, you know, your your gains kept getting higher and higher without diminishing returns. That's not only incredibly rare and difficult and valuable, but is a thing that is going to translate to more championships, of course. And I think the epitome of this particular kind of, uh, you know, b- backwardsness, if you, if you stick with the way I'm outlining this, is that Russell Westbrook's MVP season is seen as such a tour de force by people. Because in a way it is, right? Like everything that he had to do was incredible from the standpoint of watching someone do all that stuff. But not necessarily from the standpoint of he became a better basketball player. Not necessarily from the standpoint of you know, how does this translate upward once they get another good player back on the team? And the question for me, and I talk about this in the Great Debates podcast episodes, how was he different from the surrounding seasons? Like in 2017, how was Russell Westbrook different as a player than in 2016? Or did he just do more? 
And by doing more, did he take stuff off the table? There, you know, there's a natural trade-off, right? Like, if he does more of a certain thing, does that take stuff off the table for other players? Uh, all these guys I'm talking about, there's strengths and weaknesses and nuance, right? Some people think because of the things I'm talking about here with Westbrook, because of his shortcomings, uh, both in the team setting, in the playoffs, and, and then just his observable weaknesses now, like his lack of shooting, that he's been some massive liability. I think historically he's been a very good player. But I'm not, you know, he wins MVP in 2017. Did he suddenly become one of the two or, best, three, two or three best players in basketball in 2017? Not for me. I don't see much change between his 2016 numbers and his 2017 numbers. In fact, if you look at Westbrook's performance in 2016 when Kevin Durant was not on the court, it is fairly similar to his 2017 performance where he just gets to play without Kevin Durant the entire time. I would be remiss if I didn't close this episode without acknowledging how stories we tell about players are key. And the reason why a Westbrook kind of 2017 season enters lore or is revered or is even acknowledged is because we love stories. Um, we love the hero's journey. And we love this kind of, this this idea of like building up this heavy lifting, a guy doing all this stuff is a type of almost like anti-hero. He did everything, but he still failed in the end. It's a kind of narrative that we love. And make no mistake about it, I personally love storytelling. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world. I just think we can do better than false narratives per se, right? Like I don't, I don't think we need to make stuff up or cut corners to tell great stories. In journalism training, I was actually taught to make stuff up, to look for a hook, to build off of it, to try to weave in things that support it, look for things to to tie it together and ignore everything else. And that to me in many ways is a recipe for a false narrative and a lot of what uh, I've tried to kind of combat over the years. But the, the things that are compelling about, you know, fadeaway jumpers over layups, the things that are compelling about, look at all these carry jobs that these guys did, whether it's Westbrook or Jordan had a season like that, Kobe Bryant. I mean, we can go down the list of these, of these seasons that have have had these huge performances by guys on not very good teams and how they're so revered, there's something, you know, relatable and part of the kind of human story, hero's journey struggle that makes it a compelling and entertaining story. And at the end of the day, that's still what we want to go for. You know, that's still that's still part of the thing here is that it's fun. These are entertain these are entertainment events. Uh, these are narratives that kind of plug back into our own lives or, or things we learn from, just like art, just like uh, a movie or a book or music or something. And I do think in basketball, there's less explicit tension between truth and a narrative than things like, you know, stories about the individual versus the team. An antihero story is often very individualistic. Uh, the floor-raising story is the single superhero trying to overcome and not being able to do it. But the ceiling-raising story, and th these were told a lot 
in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when, when Russell was the blueprint, when he was winning championships, when you know our, our narratives and our media landscape was different. Back then, there was a, a sort of a slant toward the ceiling-raising team-centric stories. Those are the stories of camaraderie, of trust, of sacrifice. You hear that word a lot, which, by the way, is always very funny to me how the language around players teaming up is sacrificing to win. What are they sacrificing? It implies they're not trying to win. I think, ironically, they're saying they're sacrificing their stats, which is the, <laughs> which is the same thing people are saying try and doesn't capture what's happening and isn't the whole story. I don't know. Those ideas seem contradictory to me. Um, maybe you can point out something I'm, I'm missing there. Anyway, we want to tell stories, but just like we can do better than just presenting a bunch of numbers that doesn't really tell a compelling story, I think we can do better than presenting false narratives or not being clear about the things we communicate. It's, again, a difficult fadeaway shot may be harder. It may be more fun. It may have many things that make it superior in many dimensions to a layup. But we don't have to conflate that with impact. And I think that's where this all points to me. It points all the things I talked about in this show about the blame game and Siakam and Giannis and Rudy Gobert and what they go through. It seems to me that people want to have those discussions on the same playing field as impact and say, this is what's actually happened. What's actually happened is this player stinks. I know. I think what's actually happened is there's a roster weakness or this player has a weakness or this player isn't as good as, you know, LeBron James, but that doesn't mean they're terrible. And what we're really still trying to talk about here is impact and bringing all of those ideas and, and, and smuggling them in, in the impact or goodness or quality conversation. I think we can do better. Let's leave it at that to support this podcast. You can support our sponsors, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. You get 40% off the annual subscription price there, theathletic.com theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. See if I can still speak. That's when you know it's time to end the show when I lose my ability to speak. Uh, Also, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. That is a fantastic way to directly support this show. Patreon subscribers essentially help me make make all of the content I produce possible, really. If you go over there, we've got a a live Q&A. Next one, I think, is today. Uh, We do those about once a month, extra content. During the playoffs, I've been trying to put out Patreon-only videos on things a little bit more detailed in teams or series matchups from the film dives. I'm doing things of that nature. So as always, thanks for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed this one. It was a little different. It was a little bit more abstract during the postseason. I hope you are enjoying the playoff basketball and the bubble basketball and that wherever you are, you're having a great day.